The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and joining me on the show today are the former England prop Alex Corbusiero, former Ireland centre James Downey and England centre Amber Reid. Plus we'll have The Telegraph's Mick Cleary who will join us later from Allianz Park. But first I'm joined here in the studio by the former Wales flanker Martin Williams. Martin, how are you? I'm good, Moral. Good to be here. Um, As we speak, the Saracens are (laughs) playing. Um, the three tries to one down at the moment, so we'll keep an eye on that. But first of all, um, do you look forward to European rugby weekends? Look, for me, you know, as a player, they were they were the highlight of the calendar, really. You know, obviously, apart from the internationals, club-wise, you know, you look forward in the summer to what, what groups you're drawn in. And then when they come along, particularly, I used to really enjoy some people don't like these back-to-back weekends where you play the same team twice. But I think as a player and as a fan... They just they they're so intriguing, you know how we've seen it over so many years. How one week a side gets blown away, and then six, you know, five, six, seven days later they they, they turn things around. So it's it's a brilliant competition, you know, different format uh, over the last couple of years, but still I think it's a wonderful comp. Well, let's just read the results out of the Champions Cup. Um, La Rochelle forty nine, Wasps twenty nine, Harlequins five, Ulster seventeen, Exeter eight, Leinster eighteen. Northampton Saints 32, Ospreys 43, Castra 16, Racing 13, Munster 33 and Leicester 10. Let's start with the, well, one of the standout results and one of the standout performances. Um, La Rochelle uh, scored six tries, he conceded five, but uh, still well out in front of Wasps. Um, I have my own thoughts on, on them, but uh, the top of the top 14 at the moment... Um, and they're leading the way with a brand of rugby which we haven't seen in France for quite some time now. What do you make of them? I, I, I'm in total agreement with you, Moro. I think they are, you know, if you've, wherever they are charging for a season ticket isn't enough. You know, that, <laughs> that's the place to go and watch rugby, isn't it? Um, like you say, the style they play, the energy in the stadium. Uh, watch them the first round against Ulster. You know, and Ulster are one of those sides where a little bit hot and cold. You're never quite sure what uh, what they're going to produce, but they just absolutely blew them away. You know, they for me, there's no back row. I'm watching the back row of Victor Vito, uh, Bottia, and Gordon. I know Gordon was on, came off the bench on uh, Sunday against Wasp, but they are just so dynamic. There's, they, you know, there's so much energy. They're so skillful, and and, and Wasp were full of confidence going out there as well, weren't they? So to be blown away in the manner that they were shows, you know, where they look a really well court side as well La Rochelle yeah, I mean, interesting in the sense that do they have their complement of foreign players as indeed do do most sides and so especially in the French league but they don't have the out and out stars that you no. um, would associate with being imports into uh, France highly paid but you know Victor Vito for me is a, in the same sort of category as maybe Nick Evans and so not quite got into the all black side but principally you, you can make a case for him, you know, just the fact that he's got Kieran Reid in front of him and, you know, the Kano and, uh, you know, Ari Surveyor. But um, tremendous dexterity, tremendous awareness of, you know, the ball, when to move it, when not to, um, good carrier, good offloader. You know, around that sort of thing, they make such a lot of ground and make such a lot of the space that they, that, that they manufacture. Yeah, and I, I just, that's all smart recruitment. 
you know, I think if you look at what Toulon and Racing tend to do, I think they just watch maybe the Rugby Championship on a Saturday morning and New Zealand, Australia, whoever gets man of the match in that game or we'll sign him for next year. Whereas, you know, they've picked out some real gems. You mentioned Victor Vito, Jason Eaton in the second row as well, another guy who had yeah. a couple of caps for the All Blacks. But I think they do their research in what sort of personality they are as well. They're not just coming over to France to pick up a pension. Yes, they're getting well paid, but just real, real quality. And then, you, like you say, they've got a lot of... Home players as well. A lot of you know the two French centres are, are so dynamic and and so dangerous. So very very well coached side. Which when you watch a lot of the French teams um, in Europe and in the top fourteen, yes they're big and they're powerful. But they, you know, you, you wouldn't say they look the most well drilled organised unit. They get they get by with a little bit of stardust because they've spent so much. But La Rochelle totally different. Uh, well, also for, I mean I know that the French teams are trying to move away from this, and certainly the national team is trying to. But it, uh, still, a lot of it is predicated on big men running yeah. direct and powerful lines, breaking tackles, and so on. And yet, with La Rochelle, they seem to have more about them. They seem to have more ambition. They're looking for space. They're looking to offload. And uh, my, you know, my hope is that if they do well and carry on, um, you know, towards the top of the top fourteen, then you might have an acceleration of this process away from. What we had for a decade, basically, with Toulon yeah. and so on, just huge sides with big men, you know, bludgeoning forward. If they can show that that is an effective way, then, um, you know, it takes about a generation to coach the way through for kids. Hopefully we'll see a swing back to what the, the French have always traditionally had and that, that sort of flair. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I'm with you more. I, I would love to see them go on and win it. They are one of the less fashionable sides, if you like, of all the French teams. But they, 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 they just, uh, I think they are... A lesson for everybody, really, not just the top fourteen, but the you know the clubs in England and Wales, Scotland, Ireland. That you know, if, you, if you've got to be smart now, you know, recruitment. You, if you're yeah. smart in your recruitment and your coaching, you know, you can. They've lost. I think they lost in two semi-finals last year, top fourteen and the Challenge Cup. So hopefully they would have learned from them and they can kick on this year. Well, we're going to speak uh, later on, get a Celtic perspective, and Alex Corbusier is coming on now, former Saint. So let's move on to. Quinn's Ulster. I thought that um, the conditions were fairly bad until I watched the Bills game <laughs> in the NFL later on, which had about nine inches of snow. But uh, it was a, a difficult. But Quinn's again, just falling short. And um, you know, I played there for a while, and they're the closest club to where I live, so I, I watch more of them than other teams live. And it seems to me, if Quinn's are absolutely on song and everyone's playing well, then they have a match for nearly everybody. The problem is the way they play and so on. If it's not quite right, then they don't necessarily have, you know, the wherewithal and the power to, you know, to, to win games that are close. And I think this is one of them. I think very similar teams. They obviously I follow Ulster a lot as well in the Pro 14, and they're very similar to Harlequins. Where you watch them some weeks and you think, you know, why aren't they top of the league? Why aren't they, you know, in the mm-hmm. top? But then you watch them other weeks and they're just a tr- this inconsistencies of both teams, I think, are really, really frustrating. And whenever I've seen Quinns, saw them a few months ago playing up in Wasps, they see- they seem to play better, the Quinns, when they've got a chip on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know, they went up to Wasps and they, they sort of bullied Wasps into... Um, got them into a, a real arm wrestle and come out on top and they've got so many quality players Harlequins to lose to Ulster who, who have been under some serious pressure back home as well there's, mm-hmm. there's you know, a lot of unhappy Ulster fans um, because their performances haven't been great of late so I think you know they are two teams that for all the resources they've got and all the quality that they can put out on the on the field they really do uh, you know underperform to, to where they should be 
Munster and Leicester. Um, Leicester came just about second in nearly every facet of this game, and that, you know, in aggregate, pointed out, you know, 33, very comfortable 33-10 win for Munster. But I just wanted to make a, a comment, and not to discuss the ex-Leicester game uh, in too much detail now, but it seems to me that around the breakdown, the Irish provincial sides and the Irish national team whether it's by design or, or, or just coincidence, they are very, very effective at the breakdown now. I think what they do, especially away at home, in somewhere like Tolman Park, and this isn't going to sound right, and but they know any 50-50 calls, the referee is going to go their way, which I think they did. You know, there were a few calls, and Matt mm-hmm. O'Connor was very unhappy after the game, wasn't he? So I think whenever you play against Manchester in Tolman Park, they are on the edge of the edge because they know... They, nine times out of ten, they're going to win that penalty goal their way. So I think they, they are. You know, Omani was immense at that breakdown, and but they are they, they're smart. I think it probably in the a v, in the Pro 14, the contact area would probably be is it's more of a battle in the Pro 14, whereas mm-hmm. in the Aviva, I would say, you know, it's probably not as much of a battle. And that, that's like they've been doing that for the last. 15 years haven't they Munster you know that's where they attack it with the breakdown and slow your ball down make it a mess and, and they get away with things so we we both know that that's what we've got you guys don't complaining on the day you've got to adjust and adapt to that and that's what Leicester didn't do well, well part of it you know from what I see is a bit of the all black uh, sort of mentality mm. if you all do it and you all do it quickly you get away with a lot more Absol- you know because referees see the ball coming back and it's very difficult when sides are going forward and the winning good ball and it, it looks to be being produced quickly to suddenly blow up because referees don't like to be seen to uh, rewarding you know defensive play they like to uh, reward attackers which is is fine but if if you do that en masse you're much more likely than the isolated player to get caught absolutely and they do they've uh, like we mentioned earlier it's in their DNA Munster you know if you're going to have any chance in Torman Park the one area you've got to get right is is that breakdown area, and you know they kicked really well as well. You know Conor Murray was outstanding. Mm-hmm. We know he's probably the best. Well, he is the best kicking scrum half in the world, and yeah, they 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 were smarter than Leicester, I would say. You know, they're a very well coached team again. Manchester, they're a group who got the semi finals last year, so they were up for that, and uh, they deserved doing us. As I say, we'll speak uh, in more detail in a second to Alex Corbisiero about. Northampton Saints and Ospreys, but uh, I mean, if you're a neutral, it's a great game to watch. There's a lot of tries, but there's a tackling a bit optional. You, 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 you could make the argument it was two poor sides playing. That's why it was such a high-scoring game. It was a brilliant game to to watch. Didn't see that happening. Um, the Ospreys have been woeful this year. Really, are they bottom of their conference in the Pro 14? They they were actually against Saracens and Claremont in the opening two rounds. That's their best rugby. So they're saving their best rugby for for the Champions Cup and. You know, they had a lot missing. There was no Reese Webb, there was no Dan Bigger, there was no Justin Tiprick. And normally, without those guys, they struggle. But uh, Northampton, just, you know, to be 43 points to eight down at home is, yeah, they, they, they are in a rut, Northampton. And it's, uh, it's difficult to see where they're going to get out of it. Just in general for the Ospreys, I mean, you mentioned all those, uh, you know, internationals. But when you add those to, you know, people like Wing Jones and, and, and very quality players, what is what is the reason? Because on paper they should not be where they are. No, I, I, everybody's scratching their heads this year because 
you know, in the summer, nobody foresaw this. They thought Ospreys would be one of the strongest teams in the league. And, you know, for, they always they always do struggle during the international periods when you take the likes of Alan Winout and Dan Bigger, etc. But, you know, they've never lost a few weeks ago. They lost to a second-choice Glasgow team by 40 points at home. Um, and they've just, the performances have just been really abject. And it's been, you know, it's it's really difficult to put your finger on. Same coaches, same players um, as last year when they, you know, they finished really well. So th- that kind of result on Saturday against Northampton, though, that can totally change your, your season round. And from an Osprey point of view, you know, it's very unlikely they're going to get out of this pool when you've got Saracens and Claremont in front of you. But are you hoping they'll kickstart the rest of this season because they've got f- far, far too much quality to be where they are? Well, actually, we have neglected to uh, mention the Scarlets, who just yeah. who just got over the line with. You know, you can give them a lot of credit for the comeback, undoubtedly, but you know, sometimes, and this may be, uh, you know, a little bit of romance for the underdog, but you don't get what necessarily what you deserve in sport. It's you know, it's very objective. It's very cruel in that sense, and uh, you know, having taken you know, one was the French side that they took uh, to the last uh, Toulon. to Toulon to the Toulon. last. Last kick of the game, virtually. You have to say that uh, Teresa. Well, I thought they were very good. I, I, they deserved to win that game. You yes. know, over, over eighty minutes with playing the majority of the game with fourteen men. I thought they were outstanding, and they have them and Zebra in the Pro Fourteen. Have just I don't know what they did this summer, but they just so vastly improved. They're a lot fitter. They seem a lot smarter. Their discipline is a lot better, and they did. They outplayed the Scarlets for seventy-five minutes of that game on. Um, on Saturday, it took some magic from Steph Evans in the last five minutes to really get the Scarlets out of a hole. Because um, you know whether whether the Scarlets they got they started really well, and some, we've all played in teams where they've got off to a really good start, and whether subconsciously they relaxed and thought this is going to be easy. Mm-hmm. But Benetton came back, then they lost the man Benetton. So whether the Scarlets you know just in cruise control then and want on the edge it was It was only until they I think they thought on the 70 well, we're actually going to lose this they yeah. they walk up so not a credit to Benetton they, they've they been so unlucky in this tournament haven't they well I just think that a team is not used to winning big games more I think and that, that ultimately that's why they've just come up short this, this year well I do remember speaking to Conor O'Shea before um, he actually was in situ in the uh, national coaching job and he said that they had to do you know, a whole makeover of the mm. Italian setup. It wasn't just a question of the uh, national side. It was a question of the club side being more competitive. It was a question of getting the framework right lower down. Um, and I don't know to what extent uh, he has had input, but I, I believe he he must have had some sort of uh, input into this because you know even Zebra, are, you know, uh, oh. are performing better. And like you say, simple things like being fit enough. Mm. Do you know that's within your control? Well, well, that's been the most frustrating thing from I think for everybody since the Italians have come into the Pro 14. You know, I, I was one all for it. I think lad, you know, they need to be given a chance. But that was so basic and it was so evident at watching. I'm playing against them as well because I played against them for a long time. You knew the last 15, 20 minutes they were going to fall off, and mm-hmm. it's purely down to fitness. And like you say, Mo, that is the easiest thing to get right though, as a professional rugby player is your fitness, and I think. It does look as if Conor O'Shea is really, and and the coaches as well at uh, at both clubs, Zebra and Benetton, have really pushed this summer because, and, and you know what it's like if you're fitter, you make better better decisions, yeah. and that's a, it's such a knock on effect. Your discipline and your decision making, and 
that that they are so much more competitive this year. It's not before time because we've been waiting for this for a long, long time. But um, hopefully, I know the national side. I, I, it would have been nice to have seen them have a good autumn, but they struggled this autumn, didn't they? Italy. So, be interesting to see come Six Nations if you know the improvement of Benetton and Zebra. Will we see that in the Italian national team as well? Well, as we uh, round up the first section of uh, Full Contact podcast, Saracens have gone in at half time. The seven twenty four down, having had. Well, about 15 minutes of pressure uh, towards the end of the first half, but unable to get a, over the uh, French side's line. So we'll pick that up later on. But uh, right now, we're able to go to the uh, former uh, Saint and England prop, Alex Corbusiero. Alex, hello, mate. Hey, mate. How's it going? Great okay. to be here. Yeah, Northampton were... I mean, the first game of the season, I said this is a sort of performance against coaches sacked. And then they went on a run undoubtedly partly due to emotion and the fact that they were embarrassed in the first game and they you know they played well and yet um of late they seem to have sunk back and as martin says to to ship so many points you know and then be sort of spurred into action you know almost as a face saving uh, gesture but the, i know they had two fl- you know they had problems at fly half but that can't account for all of it no. can it no no the cracks have been there for a couple of years but they've mm-hmm. just sort of managed to do enough to kind of hang in there and, and the coaches have have kept their jobs. But really, since I've left, which is now two years or so, I've seen very little development or change in the game plan. And even over the years I was there, there was very little adaption from what, you know, they believe they need to do well. And, and if you look at a lot of the games they've done well um, in that block of the season, I think where they went four in a row, they, they just did a lot of the basics well. Their game yeah. plan is really simple. They have to win the game line. They have to have a good set piece. And then they rely on ball carriers to get them offloads or to get them to create something to get their attack rolling. When they're on the front foot with the, the style they have and when they have a full-strength side, they are a hard side to beat if they get those things right. But if, if you play, like you look at the two times they've played Saris once in the Prem and in, and in Europe, if a team fronts up in defence, disrupts their line out and, so they, and, and their scrum so they can't get their first couple of phases right, they are very, very vulnerable. And that's when you see big scores run up against them. And, you know, the Ospreys played, you know, put the game to bed, really, within 50-odd minutes. And the comeback was good. And I enjoyed seeing it. And I was hoping they'd do better and get the win. But at the same time, those cracks are becoming even bigger um, of the issues that they have and the limited the way their game is limited to certain one style of play, which is really harming them, I think. Well, what do you think about it? Mean, because for a while, I've thought that Northampton have lacked, certainly, well, certainly lacked depth at halfback. Um, you know, Myler, very decent club player, um, but I think, without being unkind, I think that's, that's probably the level. Malinder uh, playing in several positions. I'm not sure that uh, his natural one is number 10 either. Yeah. So... But that's been apparent for for a while and not and not addressed. What, is it just a, a, a case of the personnel change, or, or does it go deeper than that? Do you think? I think they. I think two things. I think they failed on a recruitment basis that they should have. Is it? Is it? They've got. Is it Dan Bigger coming next year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's right. That, yeah. A signing like that needed to be done about two, two or three years ago. You know, Stephen Marler is a great player, and when Saints are playing. The, the, the style of game plan they wanted to, they don't, they, Myler does a lot of the things they need well. He gets them in the right areas of the field. 
he releases the big power 12 and, you know, he can steer the sort of shit. But now the premiership and rugby has changed that we need a, you need a more expansive uh, game plan to be able to successfully attack uh, instead of just running over the top of the teams. And they needed to bring in a 10 who was going to run the show there sooner. I think um, they tried with Hanaran, but they never quite got the reins. Now they've got Francis and it seems like they want to have him there and they want to build with him. But he's just been unlucky with you know, concussion or the or the odd injury, which has kept them out of maybe consistency there. But they really need, you know, to find one ten. I don't think Maland is their best ten. I think he, I like seeing him at fifteen, uh, and I think they need to find someone to own that ten shirt and give them time to to gain control of the team and really run the show. I think they they sometimes lack that direction from uh, from from ten, and I think they need that. Alex, it's uh, Martin Williams here. Hope you're well, Paul. Hey, Martin. Um. Mate, you mentioned obviously all of all the fingers are being pointed to the coaches, Jim Allender, Dorian West, and you said you were you've been there long you were there a long time under them. Have they had the same sort of coaches around them as well in that time, or have they mixed and matched? It's been pretty much so I was there, if you include my tenure there, I can speak for say sort of five years and there's been not been much change. So Phil Dowson has come in this year to try and shake things up, and I've heard that he's having a very positive in uh, influence behind the scenes, but there's only so much you can do, especially when he's also looking after, you know, under 18s and, and developing players as well as having some hands on the first team. Alan Dickinson has gained more control um, through the years, but primarily, you know, where Alex King was there, where really Alex, Alan Dickinson just took over Kingy's role and they didn't really bring anyone new in there. But on a whole, it's been very much the same. And, and, I, and it's hard for me to be harsh because I, I have a lot of, you know, emotions for the club and feel well, but you've got to be honest. And it, it just it just looks like it's completely stagnated because they still have a good enough squad to be very competitive in Europe and the league. And I, I still they, they could people can point to recruitment and they could have recruited better or maybe they shouldn't let someone like Pickamoles go. But I think on a whole, they still are not making the most out of the out of the players they have on the field. And and for me, that's the big problem. I I, I don't think it's a lack of effort. I don't think it's whatever. I think it's just a limited game plan with a lack of, you know, adding layers and developing over the years. And this has been going on for a while now and it's finally come to a head. Well, you front NBC's uh, rugby coverage. Um, does that include the Euro- European stuff? It does not include the European. Uh, that's why I'm available and back in the UK now. It's, <laughs> uh, it's a premiership, the Six Nations, uh, and anything world rugby. So World Cup, Sevens and women's rugby. And how's, how's that going? Because, you know, everyone's talked about the American market for so long and we all know the peculiar challenges they have, not least geographically, you know, yeah. the cost of that. But, um, you know, do you think it's uh, that it's, your coverage may, is making it, a mark? You know, it's never going to be, you know, Rome wasn't built in the day or one of those terms. It's never going to happen overnight. But I think uh, that we are making good indents in the market. I think we're starting to get a good viewership in a consistent time slot with Premiership Rugby, which mm-hmm. is helping you know, e- easily getting over 100,000 viewers, which is solid numbers in the big picture thing. I know obviously comparing it to the whole of America's not, but if you look at it on a, on, a, on, a, on a channel like we are, that's great. I think the big catalyst for us is um, two things. There's going to be the Six Nations coming mm-hmm. uh, on. So this th- that's going to be gr- uh, great. It's going to be on NBC Sports, but the big thing is the last game, which is England v Ireland, which hopefully, sorry, Martin, will be the decider. <laughs> I wouldn't argue against St. that Patrick's either. St. Patrick's Day weekend in 
in, uh, and it's on flagship NBC, which is Channel 4 in every TV in America. So that should be a huge showcase of rugby to the American public. And it will definitely be the most watched rugby game in American history. And I think having the Six Nations there for at least another three, four years, hopefully six, uh, should be a big catalyst to get more eyes on the sport, more interest, and in a good place. And then lastly, they've got the next two World Cups. And I think those would be great viewing and hopefully should kick things on, especially if America can find a way to be a bit more competitive in these World Cups because the Sevens have done a, a fantastic job at galvanizing uh, fans over there by being successful on the international stage because that's what Americans are. They're patriots. They like to get behind their teams. And I think if we get American teams doing more competitive on a bigger scene, it's going to turn more attention to the sport as well. Ge- geographically, Al, is it predominantly East Coast where you know the rugby uh, hotbeds or is it... East Coast, Northeast, um, East Coast is big, but actually a real hotbed is is actually the West Coast now. So California's huge, even Washington. There's um, it's a little bit more of a Pacific Islander um, influx right. that side, and obviously rugby's so strong in their culture. Hawaii with all the Samoans there, and even areas like Texas are starting to become a little bit of a hotbed for rugby as well. So it, it really isn't limited to one area of the country, but because the country's so big and then Colorado is another one you've got pockets of it but there's a, they can be quite far apart from each other so that's the big thing is you know and that's the challenges of a lot of the leagues that are trying to set over there is figuring out where they want to be and also the geographical um, str- uh, problems that come with playing a competition across such a big country and how are they how are they doing because this is always a test and Italian rugby has been trying for a long time and not making the inroads that everyone thought it would be you know at high school level and so on, when you get the the talent, the 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 physical talent earlier, so that they can learn more about the wider game and the instinctive stuff, rather than just the rote disciplines of you know lineouts and scrums, which and defences, which you can practice. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is moving in the right direction. We're getting a good participation rate. We've got good rugby on TV now, so people can see you know what you know the top level of rugby is looking like. The coaches' development is improving. Premiership Rugby are making a big uh, interest over there by helping educate coaches, getting kids playing, just to try and help grow the sport. Um, but the big thing for me is, um, you know, going forward is because rugby's so cop- uh, compartmentalised across mm-hmm. the United States, there's no universal rugby season. So different areas play r- rugby at uh-huh. different times. And I think... The be- for someone who's now spending more time over there, the best thing is is for America to find a universal rugby season. Okay. And they try and align that not when the football season's on. Mm-hmm. So some sort of spring or even if it has to be summer season, purely so even if kids play American football or they play basketball or they play one of the other big sports, they've at least had a, a window to get familiarized to rugby, to enjoy it. So, if, so when they're starting at, say, 18, they decide they're not going to make a top Div 1 college and maybe they want to play rugby, they have a, a foundation in the game and they're not, or they try at 21, they've actually played and not starting from scratch. Because a lot of the best players, bar a few, that have, have made it through the USA system, even when they've been maybe, say, late developers, have actually played at some level at high school or at college or somewhere they had some familiarity with the game. And I think that's that would be a big step in getting the game forward is trying to find a window where everyone can play rugby around the same time of the year. It doesn't overlap with football, so more people are going to play and be familiar with it. Well, uh, let's hope, I mean, small steps first, but uh, come back and uh, have a word with us uh, around the Six Nations, mate. 
Will do. Sounds great, mate. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Right, to get uh, an Irish perspective, I'm pleased to say we can speak to the former Ireland Munster, Leinster Connett, sent to also Glasgow Wasps and Saints, James Downey. James, hello. Hi, Brian, how are you? Okay, uh, two wins, Leinster uh, beating the English champions, 18-8, and Munster um, fairly comprehensive, uh, 33-10 to against Leicester. Uh, let's take the Exeter game first. Exeter among the premiership sides are one of those sides who are very effective in terms of, you know, their accuracy at the breakdown, the way they recycle ball, and they got a lot of ball uh, against Leinster, but they couldn't do what they usually do, which is simply, you know, make enough uh, carries, have enough phases to find the the gaps. Uh, who's responsible, do you think, for the... Uh, the the defence and uh, you know the the way that Leinster approach this the, approach this game. Um, I think a lot of the credit actually has to go to Stuart Lancaster. Okay. Um, um, to be fair, all the players speak extremely highly of him since yeah. he's come in, and I think you look at uh, a situation where you look at Exeter who had a couple of times they had twenty plus phases, and all they come away with I think it was three points, mm-hmm. um, and and then Leinster uh, flip side have thirty over over 30 and 40 phase plays and they come away with scores so yeah. there was a slight difference in, in that regard but I think defensively I think you know, definitely Stu Lancaster's had a big impact the way they're playing um, they play with a, a 13 man front up and, and two in the backfield similarly a little bit the way Exeter is but I think um, the way Stuart's brought it in and would know about the premiership uh, and bringing that insight into the Leinster players helped an awful lot and uh, Sexton well, we know, you know how how good a player he is, but it it seems to me that you know whilst he does call the shots for Leinster, the, and he is vital in in, in one sense, um, you know, it's not the case that if you took him out, that they would uh, you know suffer you know inordinately. And there's a lot more to them than you know than say that that star player. Yeah, and I think they've had to to learn to deal when he's not there and. Mm-hmm. The way the Irish system works is, and they have such control and central contracts over the players. And and Johnny will normally play a week before a European game, and and then Ross Byrne, who's the the, the other ten there, he'll step up and play an awful lot of game and have an awful lot of game time. Um, so you can't rely on them. They've relied on him before, and it's, it's faltered them when they've lost him to injury. But they've players across the board. You've got Ethan Estivo with that experience. Uh, Scott Farley now is added a new dimension and. Uh, you're missing Jamie Heathcliff along with that as well. There's plenty of players who are there to step up and have that experience. So, look, if you lose Johnny, there's always other people there, which is which is the the good thing about Leinster and a, a huge strength they have at the moment, and, and certainly is with the big strong squad they have and need. James, it's uh, Martin Williams here. Hope you're well, pal. Um, just the most impressive, because I obviously follow Leinster a lot in the Pro 14, and the the most impressive thing for me is. The, the plays they have coming through, the academy system they must have there is it must be incredible, is it? Because you know the youngsters you mentioned, you look at the guys they bring through. Yes, they sign you know some big players, but they don't go out and sign many overseas players. That, but the quality they coming through our academy system, there must be one well oil machine that. Absolutely, look, it's a conveyor belt of players coming through, and I think that it's the best academy system that I've seen, and and across all the clubs I've certainly been at, and. Uh, it's the strongest by far. If you look at the rest of the provinces, 
Um, a lot of them are stacked with uh, Leinster players who just can't get game time yeah. at, uh, at Leinster and are pushed out. You look at Andrew Conway down there as well, playing for Munster, and now he's playing for Ireland. Um, but no, the academy system's second to none. And I guess one of the positive things about having central contracts is when you, you take away these players, these young players are actually getting a bit of game time uh, and are stepping up and are having to get used to playing with all these top quality players as well. Is, is, every is, year it, sub- Sorry? is is that funded then by the IRFU or the Lens? Is that you know specifically by Lens? Why is it so much better compared to say Munster as well? as you think? Um, I think it starts in the school system. The school system, especially in Leinster, is uh, extremely highly regarded. It's oh. high pressure. Um, there's a schools cup in Leinster, which is mostly be Dublin teams. And to be honest, the the quality there has picked up year on year. And uh, they're identified these players at such an early age. And if you look at the other provinces, they've only got one or two schools that are producing decent players, while in Leinster there's around eight or nine. So it's just numbers, really. Um, and also just the high quality of coaching that they're getting at underage. Well, uh, you mentioned Munster and, and coaching. So let's move to a point that Martin and I were discussing earlier. The effectiveness of the Ireland national team and uh, the two provinces we're talking about at the breakdown, they are highly you know, effective at slowing ball down, you know, legally or illegally, but it doesn't matter if you get away with it. And... Conversely, you're very accurate when they're going forward. Um, is that has there been a, anything, um, you know, general said about this within Ireland as to how to do that, how to approach it, or is it just a case that they've, you know, managed to to you know to hit on this and 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 coach it well? No, I think it's I think it's a case of actually being coached it well. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly remember being in Munster and we'd have focus areas on getting into the 22 and making sure we had a little bit of smart to stop players getting around when we're going the same way, same way. Yeah, you're stopping that uh, other defender getting around to so they're minus one defender. Leinster are very good at it, using the post as well. Um, it's just smartness as well, you know, just pushing the letter of the law as far as you can, as you say yourself. If, if it's not picked up, um, you keep going. And I think that was, was certainly the case of the weekend at Munster. It's, uh, you do the analysis and your referee and you push them to the limit and if you, if you try to get away with it, it lets you go for it, you keep going on that and I think they've just been just smart in how they play and I guess Leicester didn't deal with uh, deal with the back row guys at the weekend. Do you see uh, both teams um, uh, reaching the latter stages of, uh, you know, finalists or even winners? Um, at the moment, I'd say um, Leinster would be the, the strongest one out of out of the two. Um, Ulster, they're, they're based, I'm not sure they're going to go with the rest of their games. It's a, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough last couple of games. What a good win against Queens! But um, look, it's, it's only halfway, halfway point, and I still think that Munster should get through, and hopefully will get through. But Leinster would be my uh, would be my favourite out of the Irish provinces. And just looking forward a little bit to the uh, Six Nations, it was difficult to um, glean a lot from the autumn series with Ireland because of the way the fixtures fell and so on, the selections and so on. But um, how competitive do you expect them? Do you expect them to be, you know, potential winners of the Six Nations? Um, yeah, we'll do. I'd be, I'd be quietly confident in that regard. I think the way Joe has it, he's, he's Joe's a very forward thinker in how he does mm-hmm. things, and he tries to um, give these young players experience as he has done over the November. I think that 
with an eye on Japan now is going to have to produce and uh, and start some of these stronger players in in the Six Nations. And I'm really looking forward to a big performance out of a couple of players. There's been some guys who put their hand up um, in November. But look, I think Ireland have got a bit more strength and depth and that's where we've lacked, certainly in World Cups. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we're going to be strong coming into the Six Nations and hopefully uh, get more players a little bit more experienced. Well, I'm sure that uh, we're all waiting for six nations with, with bated breath because, I mean, with Scotland being resurgent and France, uh, you know, it should be very competitive. Uh, James, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Cheers, James. Take care, thank you. Martin, we were uh, just mentioning the uh, six nations. Uh, the autumn series was, was heavy for Wales. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you find, we find with Wales the... the the form of the province, you know, the the regional sides and so on in the autumns doesn't necessarily go well. And yet, come Six Nations times in the in the past few years, they've been good. Yeah, I you think, know? you know, you touched upon it there about a fair bit of negativity back in Wales about how the autumn went. But by far the toughest of all oh, the all nations, the fixtures were really, really tough, you know. So I... I personally think it was a decent autumn. Um, really disappointing not to beat Australia again. Um, but I think when you look at all the players Wales had missing during that autumn, there's some some new faces they blooded who have now played at the highest level. Mm. Going into the Six Nations, albeit that we are probably going to lose one or two before the, the start of the Six Nations, I think the depth of our squad is looking is stronger than it has been for a long time. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom at all. I think we are a little bit behind England and Ireland. Um, but on the day, I think you mentioned it there, for some reason, well, it's not for some reasons because it's a very smart coaching team. Gatland, Edwards, Howley, Six Nations, competitions times, Lions, they get, they know how to win competitions or do very well in them. So, I, you know, I'm very optimistic that uh, it's a huge, huge game for them first up against Scotland, you know, who are resurgent and been on a fire at the, at the, over the, in, particularly in the autumn. So, um, yes, it, it's a fascinating Six Nations because it, we say it every year, I think, what we have for the last few years, it's, it's without doubt, you know, going to be the most competitive one. And just as, just as we are finishing that, Claremont have scored a le- nearly length of the field try, which was sorry, absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Um, well, the boy on the wing, Racker for Claremont, yeah. is on a different level. Just one uh, initial missed tackle, first up, and then they're away, and that shows, you know, absolute uh, quality and unusual for Saris to uh, to do that. It's um, the Six Nations is a sort of thing where if you get a bad start, yeah, you're in trouble. And conversely, yeah, you absolutely. win the first one, and I, you know, I know our obviously I know our nation well, and I know our, our psyche well, being Welsh. That when we win the first game, we generally, I remember Warren Gatling, you know, we either win it or we finish fifth or sixth, and mm-hmm. I think that's just how we are, you know, lots of the time. So if we if we beat Scotland first up, the difficulty for Wales, they have got the two best teams away from home this year. You know, they were Scotland yeah. first up, and then they're going to have to go to Twickenham. And Dublin, I think they're capable of winning one of those games. I don't think they could win both, but they're definitely capable of, capable of picking one away win up, and then who knows where it'll go. So look, I, I think there's look some openings going to be out. We know that mm-hmm. we're waiting. I, by the time the podcast goes out, I'm not sure if the news will come of Falato. That's crucial because he picked yes. up. It looked quite serious. So if he's out for the Six Nations, then that's going to be a huge blow to us. But you're hoping Ross Moriarty can come back. We found Navidi in the autumn. So back row, you know, we've got strength and depth there. But so. one of the things, you're mentioning that, 
because one of the things that Wales did benefit from, and you know, probably over over the past decade, they've had a fairly settled team. Yeah, you know, a lot of caps have been accumulated, and a lot of combinations, that, you know, tried and tested. Of the players now that sort of emerged, Steph Evans and other other players like that, who is likely to become a you know a, you know a fixture in the way that say North was for? for it's an, look. I thought I was really looking forward to Steph Evans. You know, getting his opportunity for Wales because he's been electric for the Scarlets. But probably the, the guy who stood out in the back three was Hallam Amos. Mm. You know, he had a superb autumn and nobody was really talking about him beforehand. So, you know, when you bring like hopefully Liam Williams will be fit, George North will be fit, Hallam Amos is fit, and Steph Evans. You know, really interesting selection there. How they're going to go? So, I I, I think. I think Steph Evans, I hope they give him time because he is that different sort of player who can make things happen, which probably in Wales we haven't had since you know, Shane Williams retired. So you know, we've got Owen Williams, I thought, stepped up the plate at 12. You know, he didn't do nothing sensational, but he was very, very solid considering his first couple of caps. So, you know, John Davis, we're going to miss Jonathan Davis because he's an outstanding player and he's been sort of the glue with our backline for so long but it's the way we're trying to evolve as well it was, was was brilliant to see I thought and you know it wasn't a great as South Africa team I know that we beat at the end but when you looked uh, where we worked for the BBC and they mm-hmm. showed the graphic at the start about the 15 that were missing yeah. that was far stronger than the team that took the park and win so we're not, I don't think Wales are in a bad place by any stretch of the imagination and just while I've got you know an expert back row uh, opinion here the England back row is something that is one of the three areas along with the back three and the centres that have not yet been settled. Mm. You know, players have come in, they've done okay, uh, but the combinations have changed and they've been okay. Uh, fairly soon he's going to have to target in on a three and yeah. um, if if everyone's available and everyone's fit, what, what do you... It's, fa- it's fascinating for me as in, you know, a country of England's size and players' resources, you know, you you can't you haven't really produced an out and out open side flanker mm. of you know I know James Haskell and Rob Shaw have done a fantastic job in tandem you know won two championships so you can't but you'd say neither of them are an out and out open side flanker I think you know Eddie Jones seems to like Sam Underhill who we saw at the Ospreys and he's a, he's a, you know defensively you know he's like a rock you know and he'll make his tackles but he needs to add more to that mm-hmm. you know you look at guys like Hooper Sam Kane Tiprick Warburton etc the best Sean O'Brien the best in the world ball in hand they're as good as anybody as well so I think that's the next step for Underhill for Napola as you nailed on number 8 when he's fit um, and then you know if you go over Underhill at 7 and and then maybe Rob Shaw at 6 I think that's you know there's a nice little balance to that and they've you know Rob Shaw's one of those sixes who He's not going to make a 40, 50 yard break, but he'll make his tackles. You know, he's got an unbelievable engine. So that, that balance sounds right to me of Underhill, Rob Shaw, and Vunapola at eight. And you've got somebody like Nathan Hughes off the bench then to make the impact. But the fact in Wales, we've probably we've generally probably got six or seven open side flankers who could easily play international rugby. And England, I'm, I'm struggling. You, uh, help me here more. Apart from Underhill, as an out and out seven. Kvesic hasn't really been given the opportunities. He doesn't seem to be. Favoured. No, well, the, the difficulty is you don't have standout candidates who are proven. Yeah. You've got a bit of nascent talent, but it is unproven. I think the Curry boys in Sale are interesting yeah. to... But look, yeah. you know, they're 18. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, with the best will in the world, they're going to need a full cycle, you know, 22. Um, they'll still be maturing. Yeah. And strength-wise, there'll be a lot more to come from them, but you simply can't... 
expect them to to do that. So they're going to have to you know wait if 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 they come but through. It's fascinating from you know you look at Peter Winterbottom, one of my heroes, watching Wins play when he was growing up. Then you had Neil Back. Hill, Richard Hill used to play seven, Lewis Moore. You had all these you know, world-class sevens and then I haven't really had one of you. And I, I find that strange how, what, strange how the system hasn't, with all those players, you haven't come up with one seven. But like, oh, I think Underhill, if he keeps developing like he is, he will be the man for a long time. Right, uh, we're going to switch um, genders now. Uh, we're going to speak to the England and Bristol centre, Amber Reid. Now, you're always going to trouble for saying for saying this, and she is a fully-fledged international in her own right, but she does also happen to be the um, niece, I think, of Andy Reid, the former British and Irish and uh, Lions and Scotland lock. And not only is she talented in rugby, but she's also played youth cricket for Gloucestershire and hockey for Bristol. So an all-round, uh, you know, sporting... Uh, uh, superstar Amber, good to speak to you. Now we, uh, hello, we we speak about the uh, Terrell Premier uh, Rugby Premiership Rugby all the time. And l- just let me read the results out: Richmond five, Bristol Ladies thirty-two. The Worcester Valkyries Loughborough Lightning game was scored off. Gloucester Hartbury twenty-four, Darlington Moden Park Sharks thirty-eight, Saracens Women forty-five, Furwood Waterloo Ladies six, Harlequins. Ladies, 27, and Wasps, ladies, 8. Um, wasps um, and Quins. Quins got back to uh, to winning ways. Now, I've spoken to several uh, uh, female players, and um, they weren't quite as surprised as I was at Quins, um, you know, doing so well from almost a standing start. W- were you surprised, or did you see this coming? I think Quinns have kind of developed off the back end of last season. Mm-hmm. Um, although they weren't under the name of Harlequins, they definitely put in a good shift and and won the league under that. Um, they they managed to beat us in the final by playing some really good rugby, and they've definitely taken that into the new Tyrrells 15s, and and they're definitely stepping up their game uh, week on week. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, of the other sides, Saracens. Are you know are still top, and they I mean, but they've got a long tradition of uh, of um, you know uh, in in women's rugby, them and uh, Richmond. But it's a big victory against Furwood ladies. To the to the, to what extent do the sides that play outside uh, London um, have a disadvantage in terms of resources or players? Would that be anything we can set set store by or not? Um. I think that might have been true in the past, but coming into this new league, there's lots of clubs that, that sit outside that London bracket. And I think the London clubs still remain strong and they're still playing some good rugby. But those of us outside, Bristol, Gloucester, Worcester, etc., we're all definitely stepping up our game. And mm-hmm. I think the thing that we find is our catchment area is a lot bigger um, to encompass the same amount of players that potentially the London clubs can pull from. Um, so it makes things like numbers for training or being able to get together to do our S&C sessions during the week possibly a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think the London Cubs necessarily have the dominance um, they once had in the past. Which is a good which is a good thing for women's rugby in general. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the league this year has played more um, competitive games week on week um, this season and, and the league's definitely been uh, noticeably tougher as a player and taken a little bit longer, uh, might be a bit of old age, but it's definitely taken longer <laughs> to recover. Um, 
week by week, but the games are definitely really exciting and, and the standards definitely stepped up. Well, um, you wrapped up back-to-back victories on the road. Uh, you know, at Richmond, you're sitting fourth, um, 20 unanswered points um, after, uh, you know, Richmond went into the start. What do you, apart from yourself, obviously, where where do you think Bristol, uh, you know, are are strong? I think we've got a really good, um, we've got a good running game. Our forwards and backs both really want to play a ball in hand, and oh. and we've definitely got some exciting young talent coming through. Um, I'm really enjoying the way that we're trying to play this season. Um, it's come as a little bit of a detriment um, in a couple of games so far when we've just been possibly a little bit too ambitious, um, trying to play from the wrong areas. But actually, I think it'll all come good. Um, we just need to be a bit more clinical at times, but we're definitely looking to play. Um, Kim's come in as, as head coach now and she wants to play an exciting game of rugby. Um, just let the players that she's got in her side um, pick the gaps, pick the opportunities, and, and she's definitely getting us um, kind of feeding that ambition to play from, from anywhere when, when it's on. How important do you think that the uh, women's coaching setup keeps pace with the uh, with the the players and the playing playing setup, or do you not think it makes much difference whether it's male or female coaches at this point? I think um, it's just got to be seen as rugby in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the the gender of the coaches, and, and the same goes for the referees as well. Um, I think they just have to be of the standards, the level that we want to play, and of the standards of the players that they're coaching. Um, there's lots of international experience. Um, both at a senior and uh, age group level coming through in all of the clubs. And, and as long as the, the coaches can come in, fulfil the role and make sure that everyone's learning in that environment and the teams are progressing, then I don't think gender plays a massive part in that. Amber, mm-hmm. Martin Williams here. Um, I'm looking at the league, and obviously you played for Bristol, yeah, uh, and that's geographically the closest to to the principality. Do you have many Welsh players or coming over the bridge to play their trade or is it predominantly are there any many Welsh players in the league? Um, yeah, uh, with the likes of um, the Gloucester Hartbury's addition into the league um, between ourselves at Bristol, Gloucester Hartbury and Worcester, um, we've definitely got a strong pool of, of Welsh players coming over. Um, I've been at Bristol now for eight years and, and we've had a whole raft of, of Welsh talent um, Coming from when I was a youngster, 18, um, learning my trade from like Claire Flowers, um, Amy Day, Jamie mm-hmm. Kiss coming in, who were who were fantastic players, um, and then the likes of the um, kind of fly half El Snowsill, um, had Rachel Taylor to play with at Bristol, um, and many more players that that currently play Welsh international rugby. And, it's fantastic to have them over. Um, they definitely add a lot to, to our club, both on and off the pitch. Um, yeah, and it's just exciting to, to get to play with the Welsh players that you, we play against on an international basis. And just finally, um, how are England set? It's a way out yet, but how are England set for the uh, the uh, European, the, the Six Nations Championship of that's coming up? Yeah, we're um, we're massively looking forward to it. Um, we've got our title to retain, um, which we're definitely going to set out to do. And we're coming off the back of a, a strong international performance against Canada um, in the last couple of weeks. But I think this new league will definitely stand us in good stead. Um, I think it's something that uh, our England coaches are definitely um, hot on uh, in a similar vein to Eddie Jones is that we as international players step up for our clubs week in, week out. Um, and that Six Nations side all picked on form. 
not necessarily who played against Canada in November. So I think everyone's got to be uh, stepping up their game over the next few weeks. Um, the league's definitely helping that, but we should hit the ground running in Six Nations with 23 players who are on form going into that first game against Italy. Well, uh, the best of luck of that, with that and the best of luck domestically with Bristol. Uh, Amber Reid, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Martin, uh, looking forward to next week, obviously you've got the reverse fixtures in the uh, Champions Cup and some you know, are crucial, others uh, less. So uh, in the uh, Pool 5, where Scarlet's are still in touch with um, with Bath, just about with, with Toulon, um, do you tip the charts to go through? I wouldn't. Not, uh, I think that Bath... The second round loss to Bath um, was the killer blow for the Scarlets. Oh. They had to win that game. You'd expect them now with Benetton out um, out of the competition. You'd expect the Scarlets to go over to Benetton next week and win. Um, and then you're hoping really for you know Bath to beat Toulon in Bath. So I, th- I still think it'll go down to the last couple of weeks. But the fact that the Scarlets have got to go... Probably the Scarlets-Bath game is going to be crucial. And Toulon have still got to play Benetton at home. You'd expect Toulon to get five points from that, so I think unfortunately for the Scarlets, it's uh, they'll keep going and they'll be. You know, I think all you can do in this competition, you get to the last two rounds and you never know what might happen. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I think it'll be a, a game to. I haven't lost a bath at home. That's really going to be come back to haunt the Scarlets. Well, in Pool Three, uh, Exeter obviously going to Leinster, but uh, Montpellier at home against Glasgow. Now Glasgow, you know, we know what a quality side they are. Must be disappointed with the way that they're. Champions Cup campaign has gone too far, too much, well, with nothing riding on it from you know against yeah, Montpellier. Think, you know they're unbeaten in the Pro 14, and you know if you're a Glasgow coach, the players all your eggs in that basket now, so they're not going to get out of that group. And that bonus point win up in Glasgow by Montpellier sort of kickstarted the European campaign, so they're going to be dangerous. But Leinster in a really strong position there. I think you know they're going to be so difficult to beat out in Dublin, and they're already six points clear of that group. So you'd expect Leinster to go through that. I wouldn't be surprised if Montpellier go through as runners-up in that mm-hmm. night. You know, I think they'll uh, get a bonus point win against Glasgow this week. So I, I'd expect, I th- unfortunately for me, I don't think Leinster are going to get out of that group. So I, but I see Leinster, Montpellier getting out. Um, well, Leicester, you know, have to have any chance at all. They've got to win. Uh, you know, wait Munster, uh, and then they're still they're on six, Racing on six. Castro on seven, so that's the toughest group, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Take a pick there on, you know, like you say, if Lens, Leicester beat Munster this week at Welford Road, um, which you know you well you wouldn't expect, but it wouldn't surprise you. And that group is wide open again, isn't it? Racing, mm. Castro, you never know with the French teams, do you? I know no. it's the biggest cliche in the world, but you really don't know. Um, so that that is going to go down to the last weekend and. But in saying that, if Leicester, if Manchester do manage to win in Welford Road, they're in poor position. But at the moment, you can pick any one of those four to get through. Well, you're talking about French teams, and look, it is a cliche, but that's because there's a large amount of truth <laughs> in it, you know, as to you know how they will perform. But uh, yeah, I think we can fairly say at the moment, at least, that um, uh, you know, Wasps away at La Rochelle is is you know, I mean, I, I I'm tremendously impressed by La Rochelle. I, I, I said think, it again. I, think, I, just, I, think I hope, brought, I think I hope they do well because of the way they play, the way they play, the way they they've gone about things. You know, they they they're a new name, aren't they, in the Champions Cup? They they debut in it, so it's it'd be brilliant to see them. And they are they you know they're three from three maximum points from all three games. 
Um, I'll stir a little bit of dark horses in that group now as well. After having picked up the win away to Harlequin, you expect Ulster to win yeah. over in Ravenhill, the Kingspan on Friday night. So, yeah, I think who if Wasps have got to beat La Rochelle, but even then, you know, they're, they're so far behind La Rochelle at the minute. A losing bonus point for La Rochelle would be quite happy, and then they'd win the last two games. But La Rochelle in the box seat there. And very quickly, we're, we're going to discuss the series uh, where it's going to be a defeat. Um, now, uh, in a moment, in, in in detail, but that you know that group now, the Ospreys, um, they've got you know Saints at home and Saints have got to go to Claremont. Ospreys could go through. Well, yes. Before tonight, you would have said Saris will win at home, and then Claremont will win mm-hmm. vice versa. But the way it looks now, um, incredible scoreline at the Allianz from Claremont. You know they 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 look like they're going to get two from two and be in poor position. But then yeah, if the Ospreys can, you know, put Northampton to bed next week, they're in with a they're in with a fighter's chance again. So all it just goes to show this competition. You know, particularly the third, this back to back games can throw the group wide open. So yeah, there's a little bit of hope there for the Ospreys. Still going to be very difficult because you know Saracens will, won't go down without a fight. But at the moment, you know, it's uh, yeah they're in with a chance. The Ospreys. Well, the Monday night fixture. Between uh, Saracens and Clement Avern has now finished, and I'm pleased to say we can speak to the Telegraph's chief rugby correspondent, Mick Cleary. Hello, Mick. Yeah, evening, Brian. Forty-six fourteen to the away side. Six tries, including a hat trick for Ali Veretti Raka. This is. Is it six in a row now for Saris? Six in a row. That's their worst. Uh, I, I thought, you know, initially when. The game was called off. You know, it might have a detrimental effect on the resolve of the uh, French side. But right from the off, they were up for the game. And well, what can you what can you put that down to? I know Saris were missing two or three big names, yeah, but, but that doesn't account for this, does it? Listen, Claremont were missing players as well. You know, particularly a fly half and uh, had another withdrawal just before uh, uh, just before kick off. I think that. They had a sense of uh, indignation at defence over the last 24 hours, and that certainly seemed to, to fire them up. Because this is, this is a Claremont side who we know have been in their pomp at various times down the last few years, uh, Brian, but they're not at the moment. They're ninth in the top 14, mm-hmm. so it's not as if they're in a, a rich vein of form. It's the worst I've seen Saracens play for a long, 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 long time. Uh, and you could superficially say that uh, the postponement and, and all the kind of jiggery-pokery around it seemed to affect them because they were very uncharacteristically uh, loose in defence. Terribly fell off tackle after tackle after mm. tackle. It was, uh, it was it's a real humiliation for them. Well, it was their biggest defeat in Europe. It meant that the English sides were whitewashed you know, over this round of the Champions Cup. And like you mentioned, I, the 13 turnovers as well, which is you know, un- yeah. highly unlike uh, Saracen's side. Can you see any prospect of them uh, overturning this when they go away to Clermont because now that uh, Ospreys you know yeah, got a bonus right. point win against Northampton they're only you know they were on eight points so yeah, yeah. Uh, Saracens are in danger of not actually going through yeah you'd have thought two might go through from here and that it would be Saracens and Clermont but the Saracens were uh, ahead on uh, one by one point I think going into this game both both the Clermont and Saracens have won their opening games Saris with a full uh, uh, two uh, bonus points in each game, so ten points to nine. And now, I mean, it's 
it's sometimes you can get a bit carried away. It's only a pool game, but it was the it was the manner of the, the loss that uh, mm. was so kind of stark and, and and revealing. Really, they they do look as if they've lost their way. You know, it's because uh, their defence was 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 their defining characteristic, and it was just completely uh, missing uh, all night. You know, so um, no, they've got listen. This will be the big test for them, and and you know we've all. We've all admired them over the last couple of years, you know, back-to-back European champions. But this is their greatest test of all. Well, with, you know, the quality they've got and the resolve that we know they've got, you will expect and probably get a reaction. However, when you have uh, players like Raka, whose run to set up the Van der Merwe try was just sublime, irrespective of him being missed on his own 22, you know, you've got that sort of um, armoury is there any way back? Uh, or well, they, allowed him, they allowed him to flourish. I mean, it, it's more than making him look good because he's a terrific player, obviously, as, a, as we know, uh, legions of Fijian wings are, really. But it, it's not if he's 25 years old, I think, Raka. Um, you know, he's been there three years, so he's not made his mark. He's not He's not a kind of Lomo that is there, you know, or Takibao from years ago, you know. So um, they made him look exceptional tonight and he wasn't that last try that he set up for Flip van der Murray's goal. His, his hat-trick really was nothing extraordinary. It was just um, Saracens letting him run through him really but um, the Flip van der Murray was, was uh, set up by a 60-metre run from, from Raka was, was terrific. Now listen, they've got a, listen, what a great test in a way to go to Arsenal Michelin on Sunday, you know, and, and never mind it being cold here. It's, it's always plumbing cold yeah. there, I can tell you, up the massive storm trail. So they'll have to pull something out of the bag, both for their own morale uh, as well as for simple points on the board if they're, if they're going to get through uh, uh, into the knockout stages. Yeah, well, um, one of the difficulties is, as we know, the, the game up front largely decides the outcome of the game, and Clermont. Whatever you say about their form in the top 14, they've got a big and a heavy and a powerful uh, pack. And Sarsas are not going to have two standout players, um, Vunipola, and they're also going to... I think Itoji's going in for an operation on his jaw, isn't he? So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. With that down, do you think Saracens have got enough to, to get the toe hold up front to, it, you know, to, to, to like form it. a win? Big Will Skelton in there, the Aussie in there tonight, and much as he's a massive man, his 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 error count was very high tonight. You know, he made made mistakes, and he's not a line out option either. So there was an awful lot on on, on Cruz. No, this is um, they're struggling. There's no question. Saracens partly through injury, which and and, part, and partly the absences through November. It's they're just in a bit of a tailspin, you know, and it'll be. Um, a great test of their uh, both character as well as their ability as well to uh, to see if they can find a way. They lost two players to injury again tonight early on, which I think affected them greatly. Brad Barrett was off very early with um, what looked like um, uh, concussion, and, and Richard Wigglesworth also limped off after that. So two key men for them, but I think they were already on the back foot by that stage. Well, we won't have long to uh, to find out, Mick. Uh, good looking writing your piece up on this. Thanks very much, Brian. Cheers, Cheers, bye. Bye. You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. Thank you very much to my co-host, Martin Williams, and as always, my producer, Abby Patterson. Uh, Martin? Been a pleasure, Moore. Thanks for inviting me. Loved it. Take care, mate. I'll see you uh, around the Six Nations, I think. Yeah, soon the Six Nations Open Day. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Remember, 
Please subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free and that way you will never miss an episode. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. Brian Moore's full contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family, as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph Football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it.